Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I'm Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I am a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois and the technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our sixth webinar of 2021, and the eight remaining webinars for 2021 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics, and I will show the next webinar on the last slide today. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our speakers will address them at the end of today's presentation. The recording of this webinar and a PDF of these slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Today's webinar speakers are, first, Brian Frazier. Brian is Vice President of Layfield Geosynthetics and is responsible for the business development in the United States and internationally. Brian has been working in the geomembrane business for 41 years, including manufacturing, fabrication, testing, and construction. Next is Rohit Sati. Rohit is a technical product manager with the Layfield Group and a member of the Technical Services Group. He is responsible for geomembranes and containment applications, and he's been employed with Layfield for 16 years in various positions. Our third speaker today is Matt Chemnitz. Matt is the president of Leak Location Services, Inc. in San Antonio, Texas. LLSI has surveyed over a half a billion square feet of geomembranes at almost 4,000 project sites all over the globe. And Matt brings a lot of experience to us. And that is Matt in the photograph there just a couple days ago. So, Brian, please take it away. Okay, well, thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here today. And uh, the, yes, this presentation is on double line systems. Uh, specializing with fabricated geomembranes. We're going to talk about uh, this morning or this afternoon market applications, the importance of geomembrane selection, performance testing for double line systems as they're deemed more critical applications typically, and advantages of fabricated geomembranes. Rohit is going to do a overview of a brine cavern project, including covering the drainage layer uh, design and selection. And Matt will uh, be covering the leak detection of double line systems, including fabricated geomembranes. We'll be addressing geomembranes today, uh, including the manufacturing, fabrication, and construction services. So to start off, uh, we, in terms of uh, expanding applications, we are seeing a lot more applications of double line systems. Uh, typically, these are more critical containment applications. Historically, we, we saw double-line systems in the waste management uh, for landfills, composite systems. Today, we're seeing it in the energy sector, upstream oil and gas for drilling and completions, midstream for fuel storage, as well as seeing it in the mining for process of water ponds, uh, barren pregnant solutions, uh, municipal wastewater, and we're seeing a lot of this as well in agricultural applications, the food processors in terms of um, anaerobic digesters. In terms of the design and installation, 
Really, I'm not uh, a lot changes whether we're dealing with a field installed 80 mil rigid semi-crystalline HDPE liner versus a prefabricated 30 mil flexible membrane liner in terms of subgrade preparation, the anchor trench detail, attachments to penetrations, mechanical anchorage, the design of the drainage layer, or the field welding process or equipment. And from the material manufacturing point of view, the MQA or the construction CQA, really a not, not a lot changes regardless of the geomembrane type. However, the selection of the geomembrane and geocomposite materials are very, very important. And really the takeaway here is there's no one material suitable for all applications. We have different pond configurations and, and sizes, and we definitely have a multitude of different types of uh, chemicals and, and uh, liquids that we're trying to store. One of the good things about fabricated geomembranes is a diverse selection of flexible aligners. We have products like linear low density polyethylene, which have been gaining a lot of market share in the last um, 15 years, polypropylenes, PVCs, CSPE, the former Hypalon, reinforced polyethylenes, and a variety of alloys and rubber products like EPDM. And they're all produced in different ways. The polyethylenes or polyolefins, typically through extrusion, whether blown film or flat dye. There's the calendaring process, and there's the spread coating, which is normally done in reinforced geomembranes. So you see unsupported and reinforced geomembranes. Unsupported are what we call homogeneous geomembranes, whether it's PVC or linear low-density polyethylene. The full geomembrane typically contains a homogeneous blend of polymers, where the reinforced geomembrane typically has a reinforced fabric or scrim in the middle, and on either side of that for waterproofing as a lamination or coating. Really, in terms of geomembrane selection, we always typically follow the same fundamentals. First and foremost, what are we containing? What's the fluid type? We're keying in on chemical resistance. Um, are we dealing with um, process water? Are we dealing with uh, percentages of sulfuric acid, leachate, et cetera? We need to know what fluid we're dealing with, what the concentration is, and what the temperatures are of the fluid. Then we look at the life expectancy of the liner and projects. Is it a 10-year project? Or are we looking at a 20-year or, or, or longer project? And important, is the liner going to be left exposed to the elements, or is it going to have a soil covering being backfilled? We also need to know the site conditions, the soil type. Are we in clay, sand, a mixture? What's the slope geometry? Are we on 2 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1 slopes? Do we have good subgrade compaction? Do we have concerns with organic gases? Or are we in an area of seismic activity? The other key in terms of geomembrane selection is, is the location. Uh, are we in a remote area, hard to service? What's the time of year? Is this a summer, spring, winter, or fall installation? And do we have good access uh, to site where we can deploy or where we can store our materials and deploy our materials? From there, we really start to look at the material properties, and there's, those are physical, mechanical, and endurance. Physical, we're not so concerned with in terms of thickness and density, but we are very, you know, it's very important to look at the mechanical properties you need for the application. Tensile elongation, tensile break, multi-axle properties, puncture, 
care properties. And the other real important property is endurance, the ability of the geomembrane to, to age, its UV protection, its carbon black, its, its antioxidant protect, protection in terms of oxidative and chemical degradation and the prevention of environmental stress cracking. One of the most important properties that, uh, that we look at is uh, multi-axle elongation, the ability of the geomembrane to stretch in the O-to-plane direction. Very important if you have concerns with uh, your soil types, uh, not consistent subgrade compaction, and you're concerned with uh, differential sediment or, or organic gases. So the picture on the left is, is HDP 60 mil. Again, a rigid, uh, stiff material that we do all the welding on site and we typically do not want this material to move a lot. And the picture on the right is a 50 mil flexible membrane liner, polyolefin blend, and uh, we'll run the video and we'll... Um, picture on the left, you'll see that HDP, we don't typically publish multi-axles. It'll stretch about 15 to 20% before we burst. And the picture on the right is the 50 mil flexible membrane liner. Uh, typically we'll see elongation of over 100% and often industry specifications are set at around 80%. So very, very good multi-axle properties and those you typically see in many uh, fabricated geomembranes. The other key item uh, in terms of material selection is consider, consider performance testing. In double line systems, we're often dealing with more critical uh, applications or fluids. So the Geosynthetic Institute will tell you that their GRI GM specifications and guidelines are typically set for general applications. And they will also mention that when you're dealing with more critical applications, you should consider performance testing as an engineer or owner. That's normally chemical immersion testing or hot air oven aging testing. And really what we're doing is we're typically uh, tracking the antioxidant depletion level through what we call oxidative induction time testing or high pressure OIT testing. And the antioxidant package is very important in most geomembranes. That really helps protect the mechanical properties. And once we deplete our antioxidants, we start to see degradation of our mechanical properties. We also often in the uh, performance testing through after immersion testing or uh, oven aging testing, we will test the uh, reduction in tensile strengths of the materials. With accelerated testing, we normally want to do these at higher temperatures. That again, accelerates uh, the results. And so we'll do this at temperature starting at 120 degrees Fahrenheit and going up to 110 degrees, 210 degrees Fahrenheit. The other key element is testing time. At 30 days, we get a, a starting indication, but as we go longer in 90, 180 days, right up to a year, we get a much better uh, understanding of how the liner is going to perform in, um, in, in the fluid type. There's different ASTM test methods we use for uh, performance testing, for stress crack resistance, uh, accelerated UV testing, um, geosynthetic chemical immersion testing. There is the old EPA 9090 testing for compatibility of liners to waste. And we quite like the ASTM 884, which is solvent vapor permeation testing. 
An example of this is uh, some testing we did on a high concentration brine pond in uh, application in Australia a few years back. So we're testing at very high uh, percentages, 27%, higher temperatures, 70, 90, 100 degrees Celsius, um, 100 degrees Celsius, about 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And on the y-axis, we're looking at the um, antioxidant, the OIT in minutes. And on the x-axis, we're looking at uh, time in hours. And about up to about 9,000 hours, which is about one year of testing. And we're tracking the depletion of the antioxidant. And as you can see, as we get into higher temperatures, we deplete the antioxidants quicker. From there, we can often calculate an Arrhenius model helping the engineer or owner determine the life expectancy in, in, in real life application. So this is a good picture of uh, double-lined uh, brine pond. Rohit will be talking about this. Uh, this was a, a 650,000 square foot uh, cell or a reservoir done in um, both a primary and secondary uh, with a 40 mil fabricated geomembrane. The picture on the bottom left are the large prefabricated panels. These were coming out typically prefabricated between four and 5,000 panels, 5,000 pound panels. The project took both layers and custom corners took 55 panels. And we had about a 70% reduction in the amount of field welding, which was very important in this project with the owner. We also like for illustrative purposes to, to quite to show this uh, two ponds, hypothetically 350 foot wide, 500 foot long, 10 feet deep with four to one slopes. Now we manufacture 22 and a half foot HDP. And if we were to do this with our HDP, we would lay this out in this configuration and it would require approximately 8,000 lineal feet of seaming. If we prefabricated this, we would do it in showing this drawing in eight panels. We could, we could do this comfortably with six panels, but basing it on eight prefabricated panels, we'd have 3,000 feet of seaming. So we'd have a 65% reduction in the amount of field welding. We get better deployment efficiencies with the large prefabricated panels. Overall, we get better seam quality because we're doing almost all of them, we're doing 70% of the seams in the factory under ideal conditions. And prefabricated liners or fabricated geomembranes are, are typically less dependent on the weather elements. And as an example, uh, over my career, I used to work in the construction group and every late fall as we were getting into winter conditions, we were starting to see cold temperature, shorter days, uh, snow, ice, etc. We'd start to see a lot of the field installed HDP projects get delayed and, and bogged down. And I would look around to where we had the fabricated projects, the fabricated geomembrane projects, because it was those crews who typically in late fall were wrapping up on time and could be redeployed to help uh, with the high density projects or take on other projects. So again, the advantages of this is we also see less destructive field testing. And of course, that means reduced CQA cost and time. So in summary, uh, my section, there is a wide selection of fabricated geomembranes to consider. And they all have some very interesting mechanical and endurance properties. Products that have very good tensile strengths, tensile elongation, multi-axle, uh, good yield properties, puncture, tear, 
two very important properties with a gel membrane are flexibility and fatigue. And uh, we also, uh, many of the materials have outstanding UV and chemical resistant properties. As mentioned, with fabricated geomembranes, we'll see reduced field welding, significantly reduced field welding, which of course saves in construction time and cost. And our factory and field seams are typically done in compliance with well-established industry standards. And we approach our, our fabricated geomembranes in terms of our pre-qualification welds, testing our peels and shears in the seams, our destructive and non-destructive testing all follow well-established industry standards. So from a manufacturing, fabrication, and installation, um, the fabricated geomembranes follow uh, well-recognized standards like the FGI 1120 for PVC. We typically recommend that installations are done in accordance to the GRI GM19, and there's very well-established uh, specifications and guidelines with the GRI for products like GM17, 18, 25, and 28. Also interesting to note that the International Association of Geosynthetic Installers has established and recognized FGI installation guidelines. And all of these materials have a well-established ASTM test methods. So at that point, I'm gonna turn this over to you, Rohit, and uh, talking about your case study. Well, thank you, Brian. Um, that was uh, really interesting details on uh, designing around double-line containment systems. So this study is all about natural gas storage systems, and I just want to briefly talk about uh, the makeup of brine and how brine is produced. Now, brine is produced, uh, you know, after washing away the salt deposits that are deep underground. They are uh, they're about two kilometers uh, under the ground, and uh, once you use fresh water to wash away some of these salt deposits, what you end up is, uh, you end up with a big hole or a void, as you can see in the schematic, and you end up with a lot of uh, brine liquid or, brown, or brine fluid. So basically this fluid is, uh, you know, concentrated uh, salt solution, and uh, it's uh, pumped, uh, uh, you know, uh, out uh, and stored in uh, a, uh, a pond, uh, which is known as a brine uh, pond. It's a surface impoundment. Now, uh, natural gas companies, what they will do is they will store this product into these salt cabins at high pressure. Now, when the demand is high, they will actually pump brine back into this uh, cavern and extract natural gas for uh, meeting the supply. Uh, and, uh, you know, brine, as you're aware, I mean, you know, it's a noxious chemical. Uh, and uh, as I said, I mean, it's a concentrated salt solution. And it's, uh, it's basically uh, makes the soil infertile. And that's why the regulations call for a double line system where you can actually detect and manage the leaks. And I have provided a quick schematic uh, showing the, uh, the leak detection system uh, using a monitoring or a riser pipe uh, that also shows the primary and the secondary geomembrane encapsulated between a, a double-sided geocomposite. The pre-gravel is, is just there in that uh, specific sump area, uh, just to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, it's not clogged or blocked, uh, you know, while uh, you actually receive the, uh, the contaminant if the primary containment was, uh, uh, you know, was exposed to leak. So the scope of this project included, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing, fabricating, and installing about 60,000 square meters of both primary as well as secondary geomembrane 
Uh, we had a drainage layer, which was uh, about 60,000 square meters, and uh, we chose to go with GeoNet. And I have a slide that talks about uh, the reasoning for us to select a GeoNet instead of a GeoComposite. A geotextile was uh, used uh, beneath the secondary, ge uh, secondary geomembrane uh, just to uh, make sure that uh, you know, it protects the geomembrane from subgrade defects. Uh, and, and let's uh, look at some of the challenges. Uh, when we're talking to the client, the client had concerns about uh, long-term resistance of saturated salt solution. As Brian said, uh, it's important to look at long-term resistance of uh, chemicals when they're exposed to geomembranes. Now with brine, I mean, if you look at Australian uh, climate, I mean, you know, when you when they extract brine from uh, deep uh, cabins, sometimes uh, you end up uh, extracting these uh, solutions at uh, as high as 185 degrees Celsius or about 85 to 90 degrees Celsius. Well, 185 Fahrenheit or 85 degrees Celsius. So it's pretty hot, and uh, you need to you need to know like you know what sort of resistance your geomembrane can provide when it's exposed to uh, this hot uh, temperature of brine. UV resistance is also uh, very critical because it's a primary mode of uh, oxidation in a polyethylene geomembrane, uh, and this is uh, in a long-term exposed application. Um, performance of a leak detection system using a flexible geomembrane, and we'll uh, we'll just key in uh, on this uh, aspect a little bit more, uh, where we are going to look at geomembrane deflection into the geonet. And also, uh, there were uh, concern about project timelines because uh, the history showed uh, you know a lot of rain event in that region. So saturated site conditions and field fabrication was also discussed. Next slide, please. Now the POA geomembrane that I talked about, it's a polyolefin alloy, and it's uh, it, it basically combines the best of the two polymers, the LLDP and the HDPE, uh, and um, it, it's blended in a way that uh, you know we get uh, good flexibility properties of an LLDP, and uh, you know some stiffness and modulus that we get uh, from from HDPE geomembrane. Uh, now this is the chemical resistance testing that we performed on this material, um, and uh, we did perform on a uh, a 40 mil uh, thick uh, geomembrane uh, or about one millimeter thick. So the first uh, uh, figure shows you uh, strength versus uh, immersion temperature. So we tested uh, the material at four different temperatures, room temperature and went up to 105 degrees Celsius. And we measured tensile strength uh, you know, for both machine direction and cross machine direction. So we used the dog bone samples uh, to uh, to measure the tensile strength after they were exposed to uh, these hot fluids. And as you can see, there is uh, literally no uh, deflection in terms of uh, strength reduction. So the material did pretty well when it was exposed to hot brine. We also did some HPOIT testing. So HPOIT or uh, antioxidant retention testing basically tells you the performance of antioxidants in your material. Uh, so on, on on vertical axis, you have the HBOIT, and uh, on the x-axis, uh, you have the immersion hours. So we tested the material up to 2,500 hours, especially for the uh, stress condition. Uh, and this was uh, more detrimental to the geomembrane, because if you look at the picture uh, uh, on your uh, uh, right, uh, top right screen, you can see the material is about three millimeters thick. And uh, what we do is we basically create a notch in the material and we bend it, and these uh, samples are then left in test tubes uh, to see, uh, you know, um, uh, to see the behavior and to see like uh, the retention of uh, properties, especially the uh, the antioxidant performance in the material. Uh, and then uh, we also did some unstressed condition uh, where we just uh, had some dog bone samples uh, 
cut from the material and they were exposed to uh, uh, you know hot uh, saturated uh, brine solution. Next slide, please. Uh, as I said, the client was concerned about uh, long-term UV resistance and wanted uh, to share some data we had. And uh, fortunately, we had this long-term uh, weathering study that we did on uh, this specific material. But this was compared to a, a standard grade HDPE manufactured to GRI GM13 standard, uh, which was about 60 mil thick. Uh, and uh, our material was, uh, was half the thickness, about 30 mil. So again, on this figure, you can see on the vertical axis, you have the tensile strength retained. Uh, this is a primary property uh, in a geomembrane. Uh, and, uh, and also you have the UV exposure uh, on, the, uh, you know, on the x-axis. Now we went up to 30,000 hours of, uh, of UV testing where you can see <clears throat> the POA material still retains about 90% uh, of its tensile strength. And that's primarily due to the antioxidants working to protect the polymer backbone. Uh, I mean, with HDPE, we got uh, some good results, about uh, 80, 83% uh, strength retained uh, after uh, 30,000 hours of UV exposure. If you're interested to look at this uh, study, uh, let Tim know, and uh, we can provide you with uh, with a technical paper that we presented at uh, one of the GEO conferences. Next slide, please. Uh, this is a typical uh, uh, drawing showing shop fabrication. Uh, you know, before we start uh, fabricating this, these these, uh, these panels, we just want to make sure that we look at the plan view of the of the site, and we develop these uh, drawings. You know, where we exactly know like how many panels we need and what type of shape uh, we need for these panels, so that they can be uh, quickly uh, installed on the project site. So this one is actually a as-built drawing. That's why the legend actually shows you. Uh, you know, uh, the, the places for uh, wells, pipe boots, uh, and, and also, uh, you know, your T-wells. This was as-built uh, uh, drawing. So this was coming back from our QAQC uh, installers. Uh, next slide, please. Now, uh, getting into the, uh, the meat of the presentation, uh, and uh, this is uh, drainage performance using, uh, a, 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 using a composite and a, and a geonet. So geonet uh, is a, a, a drainage net uh, that allows uh, uh, you know, lateral flow of, of fluids. If there was a breach in primary containment geomembrane, it will help uh, take it to a low point area, low point sump. Uh, some people prefer to use a geocomposite in their systems because it uh, protects the geomembrane from uh, sharp edges of the of the geonet. Uh, now, the objective of this testing was to compare the drainage performance of a flexible uh, material, uh, poly, poly uh, alloy material, in contact with the uh, geonet and geocomposite using the ASTMD 4716. So this specific test measures the flow rate and the transmissivity properties of, uh, you know, of, of a specific composite system. So in this specific case, we had uh, decided uh, some normal loads and, uh, and had chosen some, uh, some gradients, as you can see on the screen. Uh, and uh, we, we were able to obtain these two uh, figures. Uh, the first uh, uh, figure shows you the uh, interface of a geomembrane, geonet, and geomembrane. And again, uh, it shows a pretty good uh, flow rate at uh, different uh, grades and at different loads. Now, when you look at the other composite system, which is the geomembrane, geo, uh, composite, and geomembrane, uh, here uh, there is a significant drop in the flow rate. And, and that's uh, understandable because uh, the intrusion of the geotextile uh, into the uh, geonet structure is causing uh, the flow issues. 
Now, this was uh, a little surprising for us because uh, we thought uh, because we were using a flexible geomembrane, you know, we would see some uh, compromise in terms of flow rates. I mean, you know, for the first interface that I was talking about, because the hypothesis was uh, that flexible geomembranes will have a tendency to push into uh, the geonet structure and will have some, uh, uh, some flow issues. However, after quick uh, review, we found that this testing that is done according to ASTM D4716 uses steel plates. So the steel plate that was on top and bottom of the primary and the secondary geomembrane ensured that there was uniform load distribution and uh, that won't allow the geomembrane to deform under, uh, under significant loading because these materials have good uh, uh, compression strengths. So uh, what we did then is uh, we looked at another study. And Brian, if you can uh, go to the next slide, please. Now, this is uh, a study where our objective now was to measure the out-of-plane response uh, or uh, out-of-plane deflection of this geomembrane uh, you know, to uh, stresses. So we used the uh, ASTM 5514, uh, and our uh, boundary conditions were uh, uh, like you know, 48-hour seating time, and uh, the pressure exerted in the material was 25 PSI. Now D5514 is a uh, is a test method, standard test method for uh, uh, you know for measuring uh, large uh, large scale puncture testing on various geosynthetics, and we used uh, uh, this uh, test method and modified it to basically custom uh, uh, test this specific material. So this uses a pressure vessel. And within this uh, equipment, uh, you know, you can. Uh, what we did was we had a two-inch of compacted sand followed by a layer of se uh, secondary geomembrane, and before that, uh, uh, underneath the secondary geomembrane, we had placed the aluminum foil to actually detect any uh, any minor deflections, if uh, any, um, and then followed uh, with uh, a geonet uh, and then uh, a aluminum foil primary geomembrane. Now the pressure vessel is uh, is actually uh, uses uh, pneumatic loading to basically create uh, multi-axial uh, pressures, uh, you know, across the membrane, uh, the primary geomembrane. Uh, we also had uh, another configuration where we used the worst-case scenario, where the where the where, where we used uh, an overlap, and that's pretty typical on site, where we use uh, plastic zip tie to. Uh, to you know, to basically connect the two uh, two nets together, uh, and uh, when we performed this testing, uh, the results were pretty pretty interesting. Um, let's go to the next slide. And this uh, specific uh, slide basically uh, shows you the geomembrane deflection out of plane uh, for primary and the secondary geomembrane. So when you look at uh, the tables, uh, you got. Uh, uh, Width of deformation and depth of deformation, and uh, where it says ND, that means uh, non-detectable uh, deflection. So there was literally nothing that uh, we could detect. Uh, uh, the the geomembrane uh, didn't really uh, show any any deformation, uh, you know, uh, for the 48-hour seating time, uh, and we performed the the testing at 25 psi. 25 psi is equivalent to about uh, 58 feet of waterhead. So it's uh, it's it's a pretty good indication, and for uh, for about a couple of days, uh, you know, uh, if there was uh, something interesting, we would have noticed, but uh, we did not see any any deformation. Uh, again, for the for the configuration two, uh, which was uh, uh, as I said, the worst case scenario with uh, the with the geonet overlap, 
uh, with the zip ties. What we found uh, was like as the pressure built up, uh, you know, in the system, the ties were actually, especially the locking mechanism of the zip ties. Purposely, we actually left them exposed uh, to the primary geomembrane. But as the pressure went up, uh, those uh, those locking mechanisms within zip ties actually got into the structure of the geonet. Again, we 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 had uh, very minimal uh, depth of deformation measured uh, during this testing. Next slide, please. So some of the Brian actually covered a lot of design consideration uh, for double line systems, but uh, I just want to quickly mention. Uh, it's important to look at, uh, you know, welding parameters, especially if you're using a custom material like a flexible poly uh, olefin alloy. Uh, like we blended this in a way that, uh, you know, we got, uh, uh, you know, good properties on this material. We got some long-term, good long-term um, test results. So it's important for, uh, uh, for uh, uh, you know, installers to do a trial weld uh, to establish weld parameters. And the seam property should meet the GRI GM19 specifications, you know, whether it's fabricated or it's uh, it's it's field assembled. For anchor trench, there is no special requirement, uh, and FGI is uh, is having um, you know some uh, focus group uh, where they're looking at uh, uh, doing a white paper on uh, anchor trench for fabricated geomembranes. So please uh, uh, please look at the uh, FGI website for uh, for more on that. Uh, the field QAQC is uh, is very similar to what you do with uh, a standard HTP 60 mil geomembrane. Uh, with regards to action leakage rate, uh, I would suggest you look at different state regulations. I mean, there is a lot of information out there. I was looking at the state of Utah uh, action leakage rate and allowable uh, leakage rate uh, information. I mean, there's some very good information out there for you to look at. Um, and and lastly, uh, double-lined uh, system, you know, they need to be evaluated for, uh, uh, you know, for imperfections or for uh, for leak. So uh, electrical leak location testing uh, definitely holds the key there, and it's very tricky. I mean, you know, uh, when you look at uh, double-lined systems uh, compared to uh, compared to single-lined systems, which is pretty straightforward. And for that, uh, we have uh, Matt. Uh, who is going to talk about, uh, uh, you know, some details on uh, how you can perform uh, electrical leak location testing on secondary geomembranes. Matt, over to you. Thanks, Rohit. So this first slide is just showing the similarities and the differences in testing a single line versus a double line system. The single line is very simple. You put an electrode on top of the material that's inside the, the pond or the cell that you're testing. And then you put one outside and it doesn't have to be under the cell, it just has to be outside of the exposed membrane around the perimeter. So like we're saying, single line is very simple. All that current is, is held inside where you're looking for it and it can only go through the leak since the, the liner on the outside is not conductive. When you go to a double line system, it is a little more tricky. It, it's a little more involved. You still have the same power supply and you still have the same electrode on top of the surface of your liner that you're testing. But since you have <clears throat> a, a secondary liner under there, we have to get the electrode physically between the liners so you have something in that interstitial space. So the first part is getting the electrode in there. Usually that's done during the construction progress or construction process, but if that's not able to do, you could slide it down a side slope riser pipe. And lastly, if you don't have that, you may have to get it in there another way via a slit or something like that. 
the other main point is something has to be conductive between those two liners. So what I'm going to go into next is the type of tests that can be done on these systems. And then I'm going to go over all the different things that can be in there to help you complete these tests on double line systems. Next slide, please. So here's all the tests that you can do for double line systems. Um, and just, just for your understanding, this is all the tests you can do. You can do water puddle, uh, which is 7002 spark test. If it's conductive liner, 7240 arc test by using a, a sparker, but doesn't have to be conductive liner. Soil coverage, 7007, and then shallow and deep water, which are also 7007. There is another ASTM out there, but it has not yet been accepted into the guide. So it's not in this slideshow for the, those particular reasons. And the last one is the ELIM system. And what that is, is it is a permanently installed system. These are used at sites where they want to continually take readings on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis to make sure that the pond is not leaking or whatever the site is. So the measurement electrodes are actually built into the, the site and then it's run on a computer program so you can constantly read it as, as often as you like. But all these tests can be done on a double line system. There's just certain different situations to set them up. So on this next slide, we're gonna show you all the different, a visual of each of these tests. So the first one, this is a shallow water test or, or wading test. The, the operator wades in the pond and he scans all over the pond and he's, and he's listening for the leaks in this case. So when a leak is found, the, the signal in the ear of the technician gets louder and louder until it doesn't go away. And then they'll mark it with a sandbag and a marker and like a float on top. So when the pond is drained, the, the, uh, the marker's still left there. But only the area that is covered with water is being test, tested in this case, since there's nothing conductive on top of the liner on the slopes. So the next test that's gonna show up is a deep water test. Very similar to shallow, except the water's deep. It can be done when the water is deep or the, the contents is, is just something that's too nasty to actually physically get in. Now more of the liners being tested in this case because the water level is higher. Still has to be something conductive between the two liners to be able to do this test as well. For the next one <clears throat> is the ELIM test. <clears throat> and this is just, this is a, a panel box showing all the different measurement electrodes that are under the liner. And so if you look at each one of these pins, each one of these relates to an electrode that is placed under the liner <clears throat> to be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, to be able to, to find the leaks. So this one is, is very involved and, and more <clears throat> involved in the construction process, but it is a, is a very good one if you have something that you're containing that is, is really needs to be looked after on a consistent basis. For the next test, it's going to be the soil survey test. Uh, works very well on single line. It works very well on double lined as well, as long as you have something between the two liners to be conducted and the perimeter is isolated. And then the last one, or second to last one, is going to be the water puddler bare liner test. 
where the, the controller, the technician walks across the liner, spraying a puddle of water, and then that puddle of water falls in any imperfection or leak, and it can find small, small penetrations, as small as a millimeter. The good thing about this test is when they're found, they can be marked right then and there and repaired as the technician keeps moving on and taking the data. Again, something needs to be conductive between the liners. When it's bare, it's usually not water because there's no head pressure to hold down the water between the liners evenly. So something like a conductive geotextile or, um, or sand or clay or even a GCL will be used in this case. And then I think there's one more. No, there's not. No, that's what I have, Matt. That's it. All right. Uh, now, let me get more into what's between the liners, because I've been, I've been saying that a lot. You can put water. Water is great. Water is con very conductive, so it works very well. The trick with water is you want it to be able to, to go beneath the liners everywhere, but you can't control it unless you have enough head pressure on top to push it that way. So, for instance, if you're filling a pond up and you have a few feet of water and you have half an inch or less in between the liners, to get it to, to push its way up the side slopes, it'll only go so far. So, like I said, in this case, water on top, water below is good, but it's only going to go maybe a few feet up the side slope, depending on how deep it is. So there is a limitation with water. Put too much water in between the liners and then of course you start floating the primary and you cause some extra pressure and you might have some damage there so that is something to watch out for soil is good soil works just as well there needs to be moisture in the soil so if you put some 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 moisture in the soil and then you cover it up and then you test after that'll be okay if the soil has sat for a long time it, it still should have some moisture in it over time but you know maybe 10 years from now if you try to go back and test it the soil will have lost some of that moisture. And if it's not up the side slopes, then you can't test the side slopes that way. Uh, GCL is another one that can be used. GCL does great to plug up any leakage or any damage, small holes, but it's also very conductive. So it will work for this situation. It's then, um, most people don't want to get the GCL wet to have the moisture you need to conduct. So, there is that situation. It has to have just a little bit. We're talking one to two percent. We're not talking about saturating it. And if there is leakage at your site, that area where it is leaking is probably going to be already pretty wet. Now the next two are similar, but also very different in how they work. A um, conductive liner works because the underside of the actual liner is conductive, so that acts as your conductive layer between the liners but it's gotta be welded a specific way or otherwise it actually does more damage than good. The last one is a conductive geotextile and you can put that in between your liners. Now what's good about this, most sites already require a textile in there as protection. So if you need something conductive as well because you plan on leak testing it, then a conductive geotextile will not only provide that conductive material but also that protection that you need. Moisture is not required with this because it is conductive and there's there's no special welding with a uh, conductive textile. So let me, on the next slide, let me touch on conductive liner and, and how that needs to be welded properly and if not, what can happen. So if you have two layers and you're, and you're welding the two panels together, if you see here in the center where the air channel test is done, 
the underside of the primary is conductive and the underside of the secondary, they're both conductive. Now that welds leaves a flap on the edge. So that conductive edge is exposed. So all that current that you're putting into the cell will work its way to the underside of that flap, run along the conductive underside of the primary and go to earth ground and come back to your, to your electrode. It'll show up as a leak. That whole seam will actually show up as a leak, but it's not. It's just you're picking up the conductive side of that panel or that flap. The problem with this is leak surveys are meant to find the leaks and we don't want to find anything else. Anything else we're finding that's a grounded spot or in this case, a conductive flap, it takes away from the actual leaks. So the idea is to minimize or, or get rid of completely all possible grounding situations to allow that current to only go through leaks. So what they do for these is they have to use a special wedge welder that actually cuts off the flap and, and seals it so it doesn't show as conductive and pick up as leaks. We've, we've seen many sites that are very large and if they're not welded right, the percentage of your site that is conductive and detracting from the actual leaks makes it almost impossible to test. And this last slide, this will kind of show some of the leaks that are found in double line systems. And they're pretty cool. Uh, most of them are had water between the liners. So if you look at the top right one, this had a bunch of pea gravel on top, which was weighing down the water between and allowing it to kind of disperse around the, the whole area. But once you dig out that three foot of pea gravel and you cut back that GCL there, the water just comes spraying out of the leak. So they're, they're real obvious to see once you once you dig in that area. Same with the top left, this is a seam. This is a weld here. Uh, if you were walking it, you would not see this, but once you have that water between, and then soon, again, as soon as you pull off the cover material, it just starts spraying out. Same with the bottom left. This is a, this is a T weld or, or very difficult. And uh, the moisture goes right through that geofabric and right into that, that weld there. The bottom right is a double uh, line system that that allowed some some air and some moisture. It was leaking, and the the moisture got between the liners, and then that started growing some algae and some off gassing, and so you get these big bumps uh, of air air pockets in the liner. And these are tough to test because you actually have to walk them out to get the air out, so you can actually have the the conductive material between the two instead of the air gap. So if you have one like this, you have a leak, you have to you have to walk those out or, or get rid of those those hippos as they call them or air gaps. And that's all I have for double line systems. The main points here, um, similar to single line, but you have to have an electrode beneath it and there has to be something conductive between the liners. You have multiple options. Uh, they all have some pros, some have some cons. Uh, depending on your site and its conditions, there's one that'll be best to get you the best results. I think we're gonna go into the, the questions and uh, some discussion at this point. So we'll have uh, Rohit and Brian back on with me and we'll we'll cover any any questions you might have. Great.
Thanks, Matt. And yeah, hopefully Brian and Rohit can join us. We've got a bunch of questions. Let me let me just get started. <clears throat> First, um, does folding folding of the prefabricated panels create stress concentrations at the folds? And maybe I'll just direct these, try to direct them to get it started, but anybody can answer. Brian, why don't you start? Well, we've uh, actually keyed in and done some compressive load testing. Actually, maybe to, uh, deflect this over to Rohi, but we've actually keyed in on um, um, heavy load compressive testing on fold. So, Rohi, do you want to speak a bit on some of the internal testing we've done? You're on mute, Rohi. Sorry. Um, yeah, we, uh, you know, we have uh, done some. Uh, you know some compression testing um, you know with some uh, pressurized equipment actually uh, folding over those uh, you know those creases uh, we also made uh, materials up to 50 mil thick and uh, you know made some prefabricated panels and then loaded them up uh, in our yard and and once you open them up i mean you know uh, they just uh, because the material is uh, forgiving um, and, and they don't show a distinct yield as you see in a HDPE geomembrane, where it's uh, clearly uh, you can see the the distinct yield point, and that's that that, that that's the reason uh, these materials have some uh, forgiveness and they will not yield, especially under uh, you know under those uh, compressive loads or uh, you know when they're being prefabricated. Um, and uh, we have supplied uh, you know millions of square feet of uh, prefabricated panels, and we have uh, experienced. Uh, I mean, you know, no issues with regards to, uh, you know, deformation, especially when you are uh, folding the panels. Okay, great. Similar question, uh, Brian, you showed a diagram of panels versus individual rolls being seamed at a particular pond. And the question says, how many seams were used for the prefabricated panels, A, in the field, I guess, to, to weld the panels, and then do you have any idea how many seams are in the panels themselves? Yeah, I don't have that calculation. And again, the the on that example, the uh, material was 148 inches wide. So in the plant, uh, we're prefabricating uh, 148 inch wide. Most of the flexible materials will range, of course, from you know typically somewhere between 90 inches and and 148 inches will be the standard widths. And so, um, yeah, you do you do have those additional welds in the, we do in the factory, uh, of course, uh, and they're all tested no different than we do in the field in terms of prequals and doing our peels and shears. But again, they're all done on very clean, um, proper floors. So, you know, we have very, very, very good seam integrity in, in the factory welds. But I, yeah, I don't have those calculations, but uh, yeah, typically on that example, it was 148 inch wide material that we were factory welding. And then the larger panels were typically 30 to 40,000 square feet prefabricated. Great. Uh, Brian, next uh, question, and I think it goes to you. You indicated about 3,000 feet of field seaming for fabricated versus 8,000 for field fabricated for the 22 foot wide panels. Uh, so there's less field seaming. Has there been any research regarding the number of defects, i.e. aneurysms, burnouts, per lineal foot of field seaming? 
Um, yeah, there have been studies and papers presented, um, perhaps Rohi can reference some, but I've, I've taken some on and some papers and studies that have been done on uh, thinner gauge uh, flexible membrane liners versus thicker gauge field. And if uh, under the contact information, if you send me an inquiry, I'll actually send you some of those, some of those papers. What we normally find, like anything else, um, you know, the crews that are well trained and experienced installing fabricated geo membranes with 30, 40, or you know, 50 mil thick, um, you know, are very, very good uh, and very experienced and very few burnouts. Where we typically will get in trouble if we take crews that were working full time on landfill, say welding 80 mil, and then we put them on a on a on a 40 mil. And, you know, so it's like anything else. It, it, technicians do need to be uh, experienced. There should be a progression system that you know that shows that they have experience with those materials, and and that's what we try to do is make sure that our crews are uh, experienced, tested, and certified on different materials, and not moving non-certified people from heavy, thick, rigid materials over to thinner, flexible materials. Right. Um, next question, when working with prefabricated panels, the thermal expansion and contraction of, of the geomembrane is different. Can you compare that to regular geomembranes, I guess? And I, I guess that's polyolefin or polyethylene, I guess, I think they're referring to. So you're talking about uh, differences between polyolefin alloy to a standard grade HDPE or an LLDP geomembrane? Yeah, I think so, in terms of thermal expansion and contraction. Yeah, again, I mean, you know, these are polyolefins and they will behave very similarly, you know, when they're exposed to temperature effects. So I don't see uh, much of a difference when you look at, LLDPs are traditionally uh, seen to have uh, slightly lower thermal expansion contraction compared to LLDP. So uh, this material we're talking about will be, uh, will show uh, you know, closer uh, CLTEs uh, or coefficient of linear thermal expansion, uh, you know, um, uh, compared to uh, an LLDP product. Okay. Mention that, Tim, that's why a lot of the materials, again, the fabricated geomembranes, of course, also available in lighter colors and white. And then the other comment to that, of course, and then there's the reinforced flexible membrane liners, which would not have a lot of thermal expansion contraction. Right. Um, next question, in a double line system, can you test for leaks under both liners? For example, if there's an existing pond with an old double line system, can you test that underneath both liners in a pre-existing pond? You can, but what you're actually testing for in this case is the leak has to go through both liners to be found. So you'll you'll see where it comes through the primary, and as long as there is a conductive path through the primary, through the secondary into earth ground, you'll detect it. You'll know where it is in the primary, but you won't necessarily know where it is in the secondary unless it's directly in line with each other. So right. it could be 150 feet difference. You won't know in the secondary. You just know the primary. Right. Okay. Uh, isn't electric electric leak location testing on the secondary liner more critical because it is the containment barrier. The primary is just to reduce the head on the secondary liner. Okay. You know, there, there's a there's a some states that require secondary testing first and then primary testing. Right. 
a lot of, you know, some aren't required. It, it really kind of comes down to if you start having this issue, they test the secondary, they test the primary. Um, I've also heard the idea that, well, if the primary is not leaking, then does it matter if the secondary is leaking? Um, that's not for me to discuss or know what's best. Uh, we, we find leaks, but uh, I would obviously like to, to do secondary and primary to make sure everything's taken care of. Right. Once secondary is covered, you can't go back and test it. Right. Uh, is there a good high-level summary document that provides general guidance slash recommendations for selection of liner material types that discuss, discusses pros and cons and limitations for each for certain applications? I'm not familiar with that, Tim. Um, I think it would be a um, a great resource to have. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, Tim, whether uh, the uh, the FGI has uh, had some consideration at looking at that, but it is a good point. There's a lot of different flexible membrane liners and a lot of different performance properties and very different polymers. So it's uh, I'm not familiar with a document that incorporates all of that, but um, it should be something we're looking at. Um, yep. I mean, I just want to add something here. I mean, you know, we recently did a uh, FGI project spotlight on uh, this case study that uh, I presented and it's available on uh, the FGI's portal so if you just go in there and look for project spotlight uh, I mean you'll be able to to look at some of the design parameters I mean specific to uh, this uh, this POA material uh, but uh, you could actually use the same design principles to actually evaluate you know some of the other flexible materials Yep. Um, here, here's more of a general question. Uh, thoughts on shear strength and interface shear strength for stability analysis? Probably wasn't exactly your topic, but let me throw it out and see what happens. Now, is this uh, step, uh, like uh, you're talking about uh, covered primary liner? Because, I mean, you know, uh, most of the projects that we do uh, uh, with uh, flexible materials, I mean, you know, they're, uh, they're exposed uh, for the most part, uh, but uh, definitely, you know, uh, they can be evaluated, they can be tested uh, for shear strength properties. Uh, I know thickness uh, definitely plays, uh, plays a role, um, but again, I mean, you know, um, I may have something available that I can share with you, Tim, that you can send to the, to the group. Oh, that'd be great, thank you. Um, what are the design parameters to propose the maximum size of every panel? Uh, you know, just from experience, Tim, a, a lot of times it's um, a combination of, of material handling and freight. Uh, you know, a lot of the prefabricated panels, uh, you know, kind of ideally are the three to 4,000 pound type panels. Um, but we've done up, and many many fabricators have done eight and ten thousand pound panels that are required in remote locations and trying to minimize any field welding. But uh, normally it's just logistics, uh, what we have on site to be able to handle the materials, and we've typically found that um, typically standard we 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 really like about four thousand pound panels, and that can equate depending on the material thickness and density to anywhere between you know to, uh, you know between uh, uh, 25 and, and 40,000 square feet great 
Uh, let me try to squeeze one more in. There are many more that we haven't covered, so we'll have to do a podcast to answer all of these questions. But let me try to get one more on fabricated panels. Uh, I can see prefabricated fabricated panels for square or rectangular areas, but what about a landfill cell with side slope, benches, floors, etc.? How would you lay out the panels and how would they look? Well, again, on the on the project Rohit was referencing, uh, we we actually designed custom corners and prefabricated them. That can be done. Uh, we prefabricated sumps um, uh, uh, liners for the uh, for the sumps, so we can prefabricate uh, irregular shapes that we do all the time, and whether it's baffles or liners or floating covers. So um, you know, if we basically do a drawing, we can. Uh, you know, this, uh, this with the flexible membrane liners, it's fairly easy to customize and and uh, to to address any of those logistical areas, corners, sumps, uh, drainage systems, and a lot of that is prefabricated on uh, on these fabricated geomembrane projects. Right. Yeah, the panel layout diagram. We Correct. do a we do a panel layout. Sometimes we'll ship roll stock as well to site, but in most cases. You know, we'll uh, we'll try to prefabricate everything, and it'll be part of the uh, the shop drawings, and um, that uh, we 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 generate and and submit as part of our submittals. Okay, uh, we will cover the rest of the questions. Sorry, we couldn't get to all of them today. We will cover them in a podcast. So, if you have any other questions, please submit them through the survey that you'll receive at the end of this broadcast and we will cover those in the podcast as well so i'd like to wrap up and yes thank you brian here's the contact information for our speakers uh brian matt and rohit on the screen so you can contact them directly also with your questions brian next slide our next webinar is gcls and fabricated geomembranes design and construction professor chris and Thanosopoulos will give that presentation on June 29th at 11 a.m. Central Time. And last slide is a reminder of the FGI website. You can look at all of the prior webinars, podcasts, technical papers on the FGI website. So with that, um, Brian, Rohit, Matt, thanks so much for this excellent presentation on double line systems and squeezing this webinar into your busy schedules from Albert, uh, Edmonton, Alberta and San Antonio, Texas. Thanks everybody for attending. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.